Hopefully you have an outline with you. Um, there's one provided for you in the bulletin, and these, uh, the points of the outline will show up on the screen. We began last week on this subject matter of transform. What does it mean to move from brokenness to, to wholeness? Uh, how does God bring healing? How does he bring transformation in our lives? Um, when I was first thinking about doing this topic, I wanted to know what was out there in, in the secular market about trans, self-transformation. So I went to Barnes & Noble, and I looked up the section on self-transformation, and they had two large uh, shelving areas just on self-transformation, and every single book in that shelving area dealt with the occult, tarot cards, astrology, you know, just all kinds of um, occult activity and uh, teachings and so on. So not one single book about the Bible, not one single thought about anything else other than from the demonic side. And there is a reason for that because Satan understands that your mind is the control center of your life. And therefore, if he can defeat you in your thinking, he will defeat you in your life. Because nothing changes in your life until you change your thinking, your thought processes. So Proverbs, um, Solomon in his wisdom wrote this in Proverbs 23, 7, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. In other words, your thoughts really do matter. There is no area in your life that is untouched by your thoughts. In fact, the secret conversations that you hold in your mind mold and shape your destiny. Your, your, your thoughts are always moving your, your life in a direction. And that direction is always based upon your most dominant thinking, whatever that is. So it might be truthful thinking, it might be lie-based thinking, it might be everything in between, and we'll talk about how to discern between the two in a, a later message. Um, but your thinking determines the outcome of your life more than anything else. Most of life's battles are won or lost on the battleground of your mind. That's where it's won. That's where it's lost. If Satan can defeat you in your thought processes, those thoughts download into your emotions, and your emotions download into your will, the part of you that makes decisions, and therefore it sets the direction of your life. It sets the direction about how you feel about yourself, how you view yourself, how you view life, how you interact with other people. Every aspect of your life is controlled by your thoughts. So to give some examples, why does Bill lose his temper and yell at his wife? And why does she respond by having three or four glasses of wine every night in order to dull the pain? And why is it that their daughter, who's in the midst of all of this chaos, is constantly engaging in sinful and shameful behavior that really never delivers the relief that she is looking for. And so the reason behind this behavior, if you really get into the depth of it, is thought processes. It's how they're thinking. Because their thinking is determining how they are behaving, how they are living. So if you want to change their actions, they have to first change their thoughts. Why am I doing what I'm doing? What am I looking for out of this? Or why does Kevin blow up every relationship that he gets, that gets close to him? Because he believes in his mind that proximity equals pain. Proximity equals pain. So when he gets close to a person, eventually he'll find a way to 
sabotage the relationship because he doesn't want anyone getting that close to him because the last time somebody was really close to him, they hurt him really bad. And in his mind now, that could happen again, and therefore I'm going to protect myself from that. And as long as that is the groundwork and the basis of his thought processes, nothing will change until first his thoughts begin to change. Or why does Kim, why is she so secret and hyper-private, so afraid to make herself known? Well, because in the past, she was rejected. In fact, she was engaged and was rejected by her fiancé, who cut it off last second, last minute. And because she has experienced such profound sense of rejection, hurt, and pain in her life, she thinks that keeping all of her relationships on a superficial level or somehow, someway is going to protect her. Is she right? No, she's wrong. She's wrong in the way she's acting, but her actions are flowing from what? Her thoughts, right? So in her mind, she thinks this is for my protection. In her mind, she thinks in the end, this will be for the best, when in actuality, that is simply not true. Or, or why does my boss, why is he so controlling and micromanaging me, looking over my shoulder all the time? Because he believes that the only way to ensure top performance is to micromanage you, to control you in some way, and therefore that is exactly what he does. And until he or she begins to think differently, that's exactly how he's going to act or she's going to act and respond over every employee that is under their direction. When a person is thinking wrong, I mean, you ask Dr. Phil, when he has people on his show and people are thinking wrong, that is leading to wrong behaviors, he can tell them over and over and over again about what they need to do to change their behavior, but I can assure you that nothing will change long-term until first they've learned how to change their thought processes because behavior is driven by the way that we think. And if you wanna change your behavior, it's not about changing your external circumstances. It's about changing the way you think that affects the way you feel that then affects the way that you act. That's why you can be, you know, your life can be a wreck. It can be a mess. And what do we tend to do as human beings? We tend to run from our problems. And so we want to change this and change that and run to a new location. But wherever you go, there you are. And as long as those thought processes are the same as they were yesterday and the day before that, Nothing changes, ultimately. You might change your surroundings. You might change the state in which you live. You may change houses, churches, whatever it is you want to change in life. But until this changes, nothing ultimately changes in your life. Now, I, I know I get pushback sometimes and say, well, Greg, um, man, I change my, my mind all the time. In fact, I change my mind multiple times a day. Well, let me just point out that you are describing a troublesome way of thinking, not a change of thinking. If you're just constantly changing your mind, that's what the Bible calls double-mindedness. And when you have double-mindedness, the Bible says you're going to be unstable in all your ways. You know, anything, you're susceptible to anything that comes down the road. That's, that's a pattern of thinking that stubbornly resists change. I'm not talking about just changing your mind, I'm talking about in your mind, there are deep cut ruts 
That is the process by which you think and you respond to the events in life. You learn those all during the course of your lifetime. And I'm going to make a statement. I'll probably make it two or three times throughout this message. Where you are in life right now is the product of your best thinking, wherever that is. It's the product of your best thinking. So if you don't like where you are right now, well, you've got to change your thought processes. Because until you change the thought processes, nothing changes in your life. Because those thought processes, those ruts that you've cut into your thinking pattern are default mechanisms. And you default to that because it's in your subconscious. And so when push comes to shove, then you just default back to that unless you learn how to cover up that rut and cut new ruts that are good ruts because these ruts are lie-based thinking and God wants to cut new ruts that are truth-based thinking so that you can change your thoughts that ultimately changes your life. This is why people can walk with Jesus for many, many years but have very little to change, have change in their lives. You still respond the same old ways. You still have the same old hurts, habits, and hang-ups that you've been dealing with throughout the course of your lifetime. And the only way you're going to find healing in that area of brokenness is to begin changing the way you think. And this is what this whole um, series is going to be about. Now, if thinking leads to real-life change, and this is the question I want to answer today then uh, why is it that it's so, so hard to change the way we think? And I'm going to tell you on the outset, it is hard to change the way you think. But once you've made that change and it gets rooted in you, you'll be glad you did, right? So it's not that it's impossible, but it does take effort. It takes work. Now, I'm not going to do this this week, but next week I'm going to use some homework. And the reason I'm going to give you homework because I want to take you step by step through the process of how you make those changes in your thinking. This week, I just want to answer the question, why is it so difficult for me to change my thoughts? And Paul answers this question in 2 Corinthians and chapter 10. So let me set up the context for these verses. The church in Corinth they were probably among the worst Christians in all the New Testament. I mean, they had all kinds of things going on in that church. Uh, one thing, they had factions going on. Everybody, you know, I'm a follower of Apollos and I'm a follower of Paul. And so they were all, all kinds of division. There was all kinds of sexual activity that was outside the boundaries of God's word going on. They were struggling with um, um, false teaching and just a lot of stuff that was happening inside the church at Corinth. And Paul writes this first letter and he sends it to them, and uh, they kind of give Paul some pushback. Look in chapter 10 and, and verse 10. It, it says, for some, this is in the church, for some of those in the church said, hey, Paul's letters, man, they are weighty and forceful, but in person he is unimpressive and his speaking amounts to nothing. <laughs> That's what every preacher wants to hear, right? Man, you are unimpressive, your speaking amounts to nothing. In other words, what they were saying to Paul is, listen, Paul, when you're here, you know, like, you, you're like, you're, before you get, you, you like real, think you're really impressive and like you're really going to come down and, and um, man, what you say in, in a letter, you would never, ever, ever say this to our face. Now, you, you just wouldn't do it. 
So this is kind of what Paul is put, giving some pushback on and why he writes this section of, of, of Scripture in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. So look at his initial answer in chapter 10 and verse 1. By the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you, I, Paul, who am timid when face to face with you, but bold went away, I beg you that when I come, I may not have to be as bold as I expect to towards some people who think that they live by the standards of this world. So what Paul is saying is this, listen, all right, you, you've accused me of like being timid and like, okay, I'll put it boldly in a letter, but face to face, I'm just going to back down. He's going to say, listen, guys, I want you to know if I show up face to face, I'm going to tell you, I can be bold. I can get up in your business. I, I, I can get into your face. I don't want to have to do that, but if you push me, I'll do it. And so it's out of that that he writes these words. For though, in verse 3, we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. A stronghold is that rutted pattern of thinking. It's become a fortress in your mind, your default thoughts. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ, and we will be ready to punish every act of obedience once your obedience is complete. And so in this section, which is the most concentrated probably teaching in the entire New Testament on thinking, and why is this important? Because again, most battles are won or lost in your mind and um, if you want to change your life you have to change your thoughts so here are the four reasons why it is so difficult to change the way you think number one because my battles are not primarily physical my battles are not primarily physical he says in verse three for though we live in the world we do not wage war as the world does um that word live, some of your translations might say walk. In fact, that Greek word is used 32 times in the New Testament. For example, in Galatians, Paul talks about walking in the Spirit. In the book of Ephesians, he talks about walking according to the, your calling by the Lord Jesus Christ. Walk worthy of that calling that Christ has placed upon your life. And uh, all he's saying is simply this, is that your Christian life is it's like a journey, right? And you're taking this journey, and as you're taking this journey, uh, you're going to have to deal with issues in life and circumstances, and much of how you respond to things will be determined by how your mind processes something. In fact, the direction of your life, your walk, your journey with Christ is going to be determined largely by the way that you think and how you think about things and how you perceive things. And so he says, do you understand that you're not just a physical being, but there is a part of you that will live somewhere uh, forever? This, this word world um, is the Greek word sarks. And he's, he's not talking about, you know, necessarily um, the flesh. Sometimes the, the, Paul will differentiate between the world speaking of the flesh or the old sinful nature. Uh, that's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about the fact that, listen, we are spiritual beings, all right? We, we live in a material, physical world, but we are spiritual beings. And the most important aspect of our lives is our spiritual life. 
So remember last week we said that Jesus came to reverse the effects of sin in your life, in your spirit, soul, and body. Right? So your spirit, we came into the world spiritually dead through my new relationship with Jesus. He took me from spiritual death to spiritual life. My soul became a living being because the Holy Spirit now indwells me, and your soul is your mind, will, and your emotions. So the process of reversing the power of sin over you is done so by changing the way you think. Because the way you think affects the way you feel, which ultimately determines how you behave. It's not just a matter of changing circumstances or people. It's about changing your mindset. Ultimately, my body physically will die, will be placed in a grave, but God will resurrect that one day and give me a new resurrected body, reunited with my spirit and soul, and thus God will have completed the process of what we call salvation. So Paul is saying, like, listen, we are a spiritual entity and we're all going to live somewhere, you know, forever with God or separated from God based upon what you do with his son, Jesus Christ. We are living in this physical world, a material world, with everything around us seems so physical. So Paul is going to say, listen, let's not get this mixed up, that if you approach problems in your life from purely a physical standpoint, you're going to miss out on the most important aspect of your life, which is happening inside of you. Let me, let me illustrate it this way. How many of you believe that there are at least a thousand problems in our world today? All right. I'm being generous, okay. How many of you believe there are a thousand problems in Columbus? How many of you believe there's a thousand problems in your neighborhood? I do. I mean, hey, my next door neighbor's I didn't even live there two years, and SWAT's breaking in their back door. So we got some problems here. We got some issues, right? So, so out of let's say out of those thousand problems in my neighborhood, how many of you? How many of those do you think are physical problems? I would be generous and say maybe fifty, maybe sixty. Uh, there are a lot of young people in my neighborhood. A lot of kids. So there's not very many. My wife and I are like the elderly people in our neighborhood, okay? So we're, we're like the old people. And so, so maybe 50. So that means that 950 of the major problems in my neighborhood have nothing to do with the physical aspect of our lives. But has everything to do with relationships, behavior, finances, all of those kinds of issues. So what Paul is saying is this, is that, um, one of the reasons it's so difficult for us to think differently is because oftentimes we, we so focus on the physical side of our lives, we, we miss out on in what that does to our mind. Like, for example, if you have chronic pain physically, it plays on your mind, right? But what about the relational issues? And what about the behavioral issues? And what about the prodigal kids? And, and what about those who are suffering from depression? And what about, the, so the, you can go on down the list and the relational issues between husbands and wives and children and family members and all these things. These are a conglomeration of problems. We don't have a physical means by which to deal with those problems, right? I can't send them to the doctor and the doctor give them a shot and say, you're cured of your relational problems. You're cured of your financial problems and issues. You're cured of whatever it is that is going on in your life. No. How do we deal with those issues? Right here. It all is right here. This is the battlefield of your life. 
And this is where you're going to fight most of the battles because that's where most of the issues are determined, whether or not they are won or lost. That's how you experience true, authentic change. So we, when we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war in the flesh. So what I mean by the flesh is that the old thought patterns, the way you've always dealt with things. So, for example, when I was growing up, uh, the neighbors that lived across the street from us, uh, the husband and wife, they had four kids. Both of them were functioning alcoholics. Well, maybe not so functioning, but they were both alcoholics. Every Friday night, it was like the f- you, you just, just sit on our front porch and get the popcorn out because there was going to be a fight out in their front yard because they both get drunk, and then they were out there fighting with each other. And sometimes his wife, you know, his, the wife would like, he, he owned his own business, a heating and air conditioning business. She'd shove one of the furnaces off the front porch, and he'd take a ball bat and beat in her windows on her car, and all these things would be happening going on. Okay, so what would it take to change that behavior? Well, again, there's nothing physical they can do to change that behavior. I mean, you can separate them, right, until they sober up, but then they're right back at it again. No, it, changes, it, it would take a change of mind, a, cha- a change of thought patterns. Like, first of all, why do I need to drink so much? And secondly, why are we at war with each other? Now, the, the response they're warring with one another is what's called a fleshly response. In other words, that's the way our sin nature operates, right? You hit me, I'm going to hit you back. You push me, I'm going to push you back. Um, and so this is, this is why it, it, it was a war every single week. Um, and so here's um, five major battles, mental battles that we struggle with. And this should be on your outline, a, a place for this. Now, one is behavioral issues, right? Um, one behavior flows, our behavior flows from our thinking. Behavior feels physical. It may look physical, but it comes from the way that we think. For example, when I was a teenager and I was kind of struggling with who I was and, you know, what, why I was here and, and who, you know, who am I and who's God and, and I didn't, you know, have any relationship with Jesus. And all I know is that, you know, like every other teenager, I wanted to be loved. I wanted to be accepted. I wanted to be a part of the group and, and because of that thought process, what must I do in order to be accepted by this group of people, I would adapt myself to whatever it is they expected, right? So when I was this group of people, we all drank, and we loved to drink, and we loved to do drugs, and, and so that was just the, the, the environment in which I was a part of, and, and so I, get, I found acceptance there, I found love there, I, I found everything that I thought I was looking for as a teenager. Now, the end result of all that is not going to be very beneficial to me, but in my mind, I'm thinking, listen, I'm looking for love, I'm looking for acceptance. I'm looking for a group of people that I can hang with while I'm trying to make my way through high school and that very difficult time of your life. You're trying to find out who you are. And I had no Christian background. I, you know, I wasn't in church and uh, that came later. But, and eventually that all began to change. But listen, there was, there was no way I was changing my behavior until my thoughts began to change. Because in my mind, this was good, right? I was getting everything I thought I needed in life. And then when I found Christ, as a, you know, later in my teens, then all of a sudden, you know, when Jesus came into my life, now all of a sudden, you know, I, I tried to 
put a foot in both worlds, like in my old way of life and in the, you know, in church with, you know, in the youth group. And I was trying to straddle that fence and that wasn't working well until finally God says, you know what, Greg, you, you, you need to change this. And I'm like, Lord, I'm trying to change, but you know, the, the desires inside of me just keep going back. And the physical withdrawals of, of alcohol and drugs, it just keeps dragging me back and I keep jumping back. And he says, no, you're never going to change this until you change the way you think. You're thinking improperly and therefore until we change that, nothing in your life is ultimately going to change. And so that's when I began my journey uh, of, of trying to, to find out, okay, Lord, what is it? You know, when you have a child that's going down the wrong path, what changes that? Well, nothing until they change their thinking. Because here's what they're thinking. I'm right. This is good. I can control this. Watch this. And I can determine the outcome of all of this. And as long as I'm thinking that way, Listen, moms, dads, you can pound your fist, you can yell and scream all you want, but until they change their thinking, nothing's going to change. They may conform to you because they have to. doesn't mean they respect you. doesn't mean they're going to retain that. They might retain it as long as they're in your house, but then when they get out of their, your house, guess what they go to? They go to what they thought was, hey, this is the way I want to live my life. This is the way I'm going to live my life. This is, the way, this is why I'm going to live my life this way. And off they go. And we think, wow, man, what happened? My child, you know, they, they grew up in church. They've become prodigal. Why did they become a prodigal? And, and how do I get them back? And, and see, that's the problem. Behavioral, relational is the second. Some of you think you can't admit when you are wrong. You ever, you ever been around people who just can't admit that they're wrong and will never say, I'm sorry? Have you ever wondered why that is? Why is it that you can't bring yourself to saying, I'm sorry, or that, to admit that you're wrong? Some of you have to be perfect. Everything you do has to be perfect, and if, it's not, if it can't be perfect, you're not going to try. You're not going to put yourself out there, because if I can't have perfection, then why in the world would I begin in the, to, to begin with? And therefore, you, you won't risk anything, because unless I can, I can assure that it's going to be perfect, it's only going to work out just the way I want it, therefore I will not. That's a mindset, right? That is a thought process that keeps you from risking. Maybe you have control issues. Maybe you can't find lasting friendships and you want to blame others because of it. You blame your workplace. You blame a thousand other things as to why you're feeling so alone. But if you were really challenged in your thought processes, it might be that there's just, it's the way that you relate to people and you don't see it and you're blind to it. And, you know, you really want to experience the things that you're longing for, but it's just not there because your thought processes have created certain behaviors that kind of push people away from you. And then you begin to watch this. The enemy begins playing on your thought processes and says, well, I'll tell you why people don't want to be around you because you're ugly. You're stupid. You don't amount to anything. You'll never measure up. You're never enough. You'll never be good enough. You'll never be smart enough. And he begins playing on because he he knows that if he can control those thought processes, he is now controlling the destination of your life. He's controlling the destiny. He's controlling the pathway upon which you are walking that always leads to a certain destination. What about financials? Some of you still think that things will increase your happiness. 
I'm like the Apostle Paul. He says, you know what? I, I, I know what it's been like to have a much. I know what it's like to have a little. But I want to tell you what. Um, I'm, I've found contentment in both places. In fact, I found out that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And that's the context of that verse that we often quote out of context. You know, when I was in college, my wife and I were in college at the same time. We were married. We didn't have two nickels to rub together. And so we lived on college campus. We lived in this uh, apartment that the uh, college, and there's four other couples that lived in this. Uh, it's like a dormitory. We had single young men above us and married couples at the bottom. Well, did that not make it for a catastrophe? Because here's what I found out about single young men. It's like they like to bounce their basketball. All right? So the ceiling was like concrete, you know, and, and so you hear the bouncing of the basketball or, or if they're kicking a soccer ball or whatever they're doing in there, you, you know, it's like thump, 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 thump. But anyway, so we, we live in, and we didn't, none of us had any money. So uh, one time on Thanksgiving, we couldn't afford to go home. So we just, we, we went into the laundry room area. We put tables together and one girl worked at uh, um, Ponderosa. And so she cooked the turkey while she was at work that day. And we scrapped together all this food and we had this big feast of, of things. Listen, we didn't have anything, but I'm going to tell you what, that was one of the happiest, one of the most contented, one of the most memorable days of our lives, that time that we spent together. And I know what it's like to have much and everything in between, but if my mindset is that my happiness is tethered to what I have, I'll never be happy because enough is never enough. And that's why we, you know, carry these big unpaid balances of credit cards oftentimes because we think that, you know, I'm never going to be happy unless I have this, this, and this, and we plonk it down on credit, and then we got to figure out how we're going to pay for it later on. And, and so it's a mindset if you want to get out of financial pro problems, if you want to build uh, margin in your financial life, then there has to be a change in thought process or ideology, right? Ideology is the filter through which you interpret reality in life. Every person has an ideology. It's a mix of a lot of different things. Uh, I just wrote down some down here, like whether you're pro-life, pro-choice, gay rights, no gay rights, evolution versus creation, science versus supernatural, rational, rational versus experiential, humanism versus hedonism, Christianity versus other world religions, whether you, you grew up in the north, you grew up in the south, you grew up in a city or in an urban area, all of these factors play into your ideology that formulates the grid of your thought processes. Watch, everything that you think has to, comes into your mind has to filter itself through that ideological grid system in your thought process. For example, I've lived in the north most of my life, but I lived in the south for a large portion of my life. There is a great deal of difference in certain things uh, that, that are, you know, just cultural things that um, you have to kind of change the the, the way that you think about things and perceive things. For example, when I lived in the South, and um, because I was pastoring in a smaller town, I mean, it didn't matter whose house I went to, whether I knew them or not. Hey, they throw open the door. Hey, come on in. You know, just, uh, yeah, make yourself at home. You want something to get? Go in the kitchen. I don't care. All right, so you come to the North and try from that. People want to shoot you. I mean, when I, I, I so I moved from Alabama to Elyria, Ohio, and, and everybody I ran into, I mean, this is, everybody said, 
well, where are you pastoring? A College Heights Baptist church? And they go, don't you guys handle snakes? Are you kidding me? If there is a snake that comes out in my church, there's going to be a new back door because I'm going to make it. Um, because, no, we don't handle snakes. So those are ideological things, and these are all massively formative in the way that we interpret our reality. And so you may have an ideology, for example, that is, ba- that is biased against scholarship or against schooling. Right? When I was pastoring in Alabama, there were a lot of churches called Missionary Baptist Churches. All right, I have a doctorate degree. I'm very well educated. Um, they do not believe in their pastors being educated. In fact, if you're educated, you're looked upon as suspect. They believe and they teach that if God calls you into the pastorate, you accept the calling, you grab your Bible, you stand behind the pulpit, you open up your mouth, and you let the Holy Spirit fill your mouth with whatever it is that he wants to say, and then you speak it. That's the, all the education you need. So as far as I was, they were concerned, I was suspect because I had a degree. And so, um, and I thought they were suspect because some of the things I heard come out of those preachers' mouths, I'm thinking, whoo, uh, you are so far off theologically, I don't need a word to begin. All right, so these are the things that we have to deal with. Moral issues, right? Is there a right and a wrong? Do they have... Inherent outcomes, for example, uh, are there automatic things that happen to you when you do things right? Is there automatic things that happen to you when you do things that are wrong? Can sin be resisted or is it inevitable? Can sin be defeated? Can it be atoned for? Can it be forgiven? All of these issues are making up the grid of our thought processes. So when you hear truth, well, let's say, for example, your grid is made up of a lot of lie-based thinking, all right? And now, now when truth hits that grid system, immediately, what's the mind want to do? Reject it. No, that, that ain't right. No, that's in your interpretation. No, that's your opinion. No, I don't believe that. And so you can sit in church, and if your grid system is, is you know, filled with lie-based thinking, you may hear me say something and say, well, I don't agree with that. Well, that's just his interpretation. Well, now, wait a minute. Let's find out if this is truth or not, because it is essential that we begin to take out the old, as Paul says, removing the lie-based thinking and replacing it with truth-based thinking so that my grid is based upon the truthfulness of God's word. So then when I am allowing things to filter through that, let's say, for example, you're at work and somebody is mad at you, they slander you, they're talking behind your back, you find out they've been doing it, how are you going to respond to that? Well, that determines that, that would be determined largely upon what grid I have in my thought processes. Because there are a lot of ways I can respond. Some of them fleshly, very divisive. Some of them very dissent, you know, creating dissension in the workplace. Or there is the Christ-based thinking thought process that will cause me to, to respond in a whole different way. My point is simply this. My battles are not primarily physical. It's not where you live. It's not who you are with. It's not what you make it to be. It's what you think. And all of us will win or lose our battles on the basis of our thoughts. Number two is the reason why it's so hard to think differently is because my weapons are not necessarily, they're not readily accessible Verse 4, he says, the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. 
On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. So, yes, there are weapons to help you change your thinking. Um, but you'll notice he makes a contrast. They're not weapons of the world. They're not weapons of the flesh. Um, our immediate tendency is to rely upon weapons of the flesh. Now you say, well, what are the weapons of the flesh? Well, Galatians chapter 5 spells that out for you, okay? Let's turn there for just a moment. Um, Galatians chapter 5, just go to the right a little bit and look at verse, beginning in verse 16, Paul says this, so I live by the Spirit, if I live by the Spirit and and, and I, so, so I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature, the flesh, for the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit. So there's a war going on inside of you, right? Let's say somebody's hurt you, they've slandered you, you found out about that, there's a war that's going to go on inside of you. How should I respond to this? What am I going to do? All right, so uh, am, I going to, am I going to lean into the flesh or am I going to leave it, lean into the Spirit? Two different ways of responding. They are in conflict with each other so that you do not do what you want, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the sinful nature, the flesh, are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery. He just starts listing these things off. Um, debauchery means like I want what I want. All right? I'm going to do what I want to do because I want what I want. And he says idolatry and witchcraft, which would be like, you know, I'm going to find out about the future in some form or fashion. Um, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissension, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and all the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of, of God. And the fruit of the Spirit is what? Just the opposite. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Self-control. Oh, self-control. So if I find out somebody has been slandering about me, my response should immediately be in under the tutelage of the Spirit and maintaining self-control in my response rather than slandering them back and talking about them and putting it out there on Facebook and social media so everybody else will get on my side. And, and so the, all of that does is like those are works of the flesh. That, that is our tendency, is, is our immediate weapon of war tends to side with the flesh because that's what our thought processes are primarily made up of. Unless you make a conscious effort to change the way you think. But here's why we don't tend to do that is because the flesh seems so natural to us. It seems like, well, this is, this is, a, this is the way I ought to respond. This is so natural. It just it feels right. And it feels like, yeah, I'm really addressing this issue. And I'm just like confronting it head on. And so it becomes a pattern. And wherever you are in life, again, is where your best thinking has taken you to. So you know, as well as I do, if you've been around somebody who tends to respond in a fleshly manner, that those responses create chaos. So the very first illustration I gave you, 
You know, here's a guy who's angry. He's always yelling at his wife, and she's going to respond out of her fleshly, her coping mechanism. Well, I'm just going to drink myself into oblivion every night so I don't have to deal with the pain and the hurt and the agony of this husband of mine. And then you have a child that's watching all that and saying, well, you know what? I, I think I'm going to go off and do my own thing. And, and so they, they're off. They're doing their own thing. And so all of this is brought about because of the construct of faulty thinking and fleshly responding. That becomes a thought process and it becomes a default mechanism. For example, when I was growing up, I had a hair trigger anger issue, an anger issue. And so, um, yeah, that was my default, right? I'm, I'm going to get angry, but I don't just, it wasn't just like I got red faced and I was angry. There was going to be a response, but it was a response that was not helpful. It was a response that was very hurtful. And so I had to learn to rewire my thought processes on dealing with my anger issues. There are, now, when you read verse 4, I mean, one of the things in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 is kind of frustrating is he doesn't tell us what the weapons are. So we turn to other passages of Scripture to find out what those are. Let me just mention them to you because uh, we'll deal with them more later on. Number one is the sword of the Spirit. You'll recall that uh, in uh, the book of Ephesians chapter 6, Paul gave us the armor of God, and most of the pieces of the armor are defensive pieces, but one offensive piece, and it's called the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, right? So what do we find in the word of God? We find the fact that it's God's word that gives us truth that combats the lie that we're thinking. Listen, a lie cannot stand up against the truth. It has to falter and it has to fall. So what we have to learn how to do, how do we sort out, how do we determine what is my mental stronghold, what is the lie that I am believing, what is the truth that negates that lie, how do I dismantle the lie, how do I replace it with truth so that I begin living that out in my daily life. And we'll start that process next week. Just needless to say, I want you to think of this for a moment. If you think that all that is on the line with your daily time in God's word is just kind of some kind of warm, fuzzy moment with your creator, you couldn't be more wrong. The purpose of the time with God in his word is what Ephesians chapter 5 says. It is the washing of the word. It's the washing of the mind. It is learning how to take out the old, put on the new. It's learning how to remove the lie, replace it with truth, so that my thought processes are based on truth, not lies, so that my grid system has differentiated, so that now I'm more likely to, to respond in the fruit of the spirit rather than in the fruit of the flesh. That makes sense? It's a process. Number two is weapons of righteousness. Second Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 7 talks about weapons of righteousness in your right and your left hand. And so you have weapons of righteousness, not your good behavior, the righteousness of Jesus that has been accredited to your account. This is very, very important because you have a brand new standing in Christ, you have a brand new identity in Christ, and you're going to need to learn how to lean on those two factors in order to reconstruct your thought processes. All right? This is a part of the truth of God's word that combats the lie. 
For example, for many years after I got saved, I struggled with my salvation, whether or not I was really saved, because every time I sinned, I, like, I was so filled with guilt, and I was so filled with shame, and I'm like, oh, Lord, I, I've done this again, and, 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 you know, and I'd read my Bible and says, you, you confess your sins to God, he's faithful and righteous to forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness, and I said, but Lord, I've already confessed this thing like 30 times, and I feel guilty for even confessing it again, and, and, and so you, I, I walked a, as a shame-filled Christian. Now, if that's my mental process, how close do you think I can get to God? No, there's always a wall of separation because I, I feel shameful. I feel guilty. I, I can't do this another time. I can't make that promise to God again because I know in my heart of hearts I'm not going to be able to keep it. And so now all of a sudden it's just like, oh. And then I learned that God had placed upon me and you the breastplate of righteousness, which means that I stand in the presence of God. God took all of my sin, past, present, and future. He nailed it to the cross, paid it in full through the blood of Jesus. Jesus took his righteousness and credited it to my account, took my sin and credited it to his account, and therefore now I always stand righteous and holy in the eyes of God because not of my behavior, but because of what Jesus has done on my behalf and what God has accredited to my account, and there's absolutely none Nothing I can do to discredit that account. So now when I come to God, I say, yes, Lord, I, I know that this, this I, I've, I've come to you so many times with this before. And you know what God's going to say through his Holy Spirit? I know that. And here's why. You have not changed your thinking in that area of your life. Once we get that squared away, the behavior will take care of itself. That's what we're going to learn how to do. Number three is your faith, right? 1 John 5, 4 says that it's our faith, that we stand in faith. Nothing will get your thinking to a better place than rejecting what seems to be you to be true and embracing what God declares to be true. And you have to embrace that by faith. Watch this. Because you have to learn how, as you're changing your thoughts, that changes your emotions, that changes your actions, you have to learn how to walk in faith because as you change your thoughts, listen, your emotions don't change automatically. And most of you are emotionally driven. Your emotions are in the driver's seat of your life, and therefore, you live more by feelings than you do by faith. I'm just saying that when you start renewing the mind, which is the transformation process, when you start renewing the mind, it doesn't necessarily mean that your feelings have automatically aligned with right thinking, but it will over time if you will stay on track, okay? It's not, okay, so for example, um, let's say somebody, you know, does something and anger hits you, right? Remember, I had anger issues, and so now all of a sudden, it's not that my anger is never, I'm never going to feel angry again. Of course I am. The question is, do I allow my anger to drive my behavior, or am I willing to trust in the truthfulness of God's word and allow that to drive my behavior? Does that make sense? Right? Because either I'm going to respond in a fleshly way, or I'm going to respond being, being guided and directed by the Holy Spirit. Two different responses, two different reactions. All right, so here's the, um, the quality of our weapons is what Paul does say, and I'll just throw these out there. He says they are divine, which means when uh, divine power, he says divine with the word power literally means that these are weapons that God has given you, 
And there's others. I just give you three, three of them. We'll talk about the others as we go through. They are powerful, he says, which means that we get the Greek word, uh, we get our English word dynamite. We talked about this last week. Same power that res- raised Jesus from the dead is the same power that is given to us through these weapons. In other words, God actually can tear down your mental strongholds and replace them with truth-based thinking that will change your life, and they have the power to destroy strongholds. Again, some translations might say fortress or fortified city, but in the ancient world, because you were always afraid of your enemy attacking your city, they would build you know, their cities uh, like a fortress up in an area where they could see you know, a long way. they build these massive walls in order to try to fortify the city. And so this is what Paul says, is that a stronghold is a fortified thought process in your mind that you have relied upon all of your life. It's become the default mechanism of your thought processes, and therefore you don't even have to think about it. You, you just automatically default into that mindset, into those feelings, into that behavior, because you have no power in and of yourself to tear down that stronghold. It takes something beyond yourself. That's why the Holy Spirit is important. Again, the first step in transformation is salvation because it's then that I receive the Holy Spirit of God that enables me to dismantle something that I cannot possibly do on my own. And so you, you have ways of thinking. You walled off your mind that are keeping you from the life that God has for you. So this preacher is going to spend the next six weeks helping you storm those strongholds so that you can begin to dismantle them. And once you've learned how to dismantle one, you just take the same pattern and you go to the next one and then the next one and then the next one because I can assure you, you've got more than one stronghold in your life. This is what the Bible calls sanctification. It is the process of the Holy Spirit conforming me into the image of Christ. And so what God really pictures if you, in your mind is like the picture of a wrecking ball minus Miley Cyrus swinging into the tower. Destroying it, demolishing it. Here's a third reason why it's so difficult to change our thoughts is because my strongholds are not easily destroyed. And there are reasons for that. Listen, Many people have difficulties, and I, I give you some reasons why these strongholds are not easily destroyed and, and as these default thoughts. All right, here, here's some of them. Is, number one is my old arguments make sense. My old arguments make sense to me. Notice, notice what he says in verse 5. We demolish arguments. Arguments are reasonings. In other words... Everybody has a reason for their actions. Now, you ask a teenager, why'd you do that? I don't know. I have a clue. I don't know. Yeah, you really do. You had a reason behind your action. If you really sit and think about it, even adults may say that, well, I don't know why I did that. I just do it. You know, it's just the way I respond. Well, it's not a good response. Uh, How many people have to have gotten, you know, to a conclusion about something? And let's say all of a sudden, like, 
you're getting, like, you have a problem area in your life, and you decide, you know what, I'm going to change this area of my life, and I'm going to change this behavior, and, and like, you know, like, you, you start at it, and you, you go at it, and you're, you're really making some progress, and then, you know, I talk to you, like, three weeks later, and you're like, oh, man, I'm right back to where I was. I mean, I just, I don't know why. I, I just can't seem to, to, to keep doing this, and I just keep reverting back, and it's like, you've heard the old adage, I, I take seven steps forward and three back, and then I take three forward and seven back, and I just don't seem to be gaining any ground in my life. And I'm telling you, it's because your old arguments that are going on inside of your thought processes made sense to you. Every person has a reason why they do what they do. The man who robs a bank, the spouse who chooses to cheat, the kid who lies to cover his sins, the business owner who cooks the books, everyone has his reasons and strongholds and unless those strongholds get destroyed, until those arguments are clearly refuted and torn down, nothing changes. Because now you're just operating on sheer willpower. All right, like, I'm, I'm going to overcome this. I'm going to, I'm going to make sure this happens. Mm, it, it, may, it may happen for a while, okay? Many of you, you've, 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 uh, okay, you've had the frustration of trying to change stuff. I mean, some of you bite your nails. You're like, I'm going to quit biting my nails. Okay, how's that working for you? Well, I did pretty good for three days. Now I'm biting my nails again. Number two is my old opinions, <laughs> my old opinions felt good. Notice he, he says, um, we demolish arguments and every pretension. Uh, pretension, it means a lofty opinion, all right? If God gave you a moment of honesty right now, how many of you have some lofty opinions about yourself? We all do, right? We got some lofty opinions. My opinion's good. It's the right opinion. Everybody else might have another opinion, but my opinion is the opinion above all opinions. If you don't believe that, just get on Facebook and look at the opinions. Everybody wants to float out on Facebook. If you don't agree with me, then I'm going to defriend you, and I'm going to call you all kinds of names. And So sometimes Christians are the worst, most strident, difficult, inflexible, most insistent, stubbornly group of people with opinions than anyone on the planet. Why are we that way? Because we think our opinions matter. And so this is why we don't change our mindset. Number three is my old mind is opposed to God. He says, that again, and we, look, you're going to demolish the arguments, every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. Against the knowledge of God. In other words, at the end of the day, bad reasons, old arguments, and old opinions are in opposition to the Lord. All right? Joseph said, remember when Joseph, back in the Old Testament, in the book of Genesis, when his brothers, you know, had thrown him into a cistern, got sold off into slavery, and he's in prison, and then finally he's second in command over, you know, over Egypt, and his brothers are now brought to him, and after the, his father died, they just knew, they just knew that Joseph was going to kill them. And so he, he calls them into his chambers, and they there, they, this is it, we're going to lose our heads, which Joseph could have done, and nobody would have lifted a finger or said a word about it, but here's what Joseph said to them. He said, um, how can I do this wickedness against God? In other words, I can't, listen, how can I be in direct opposition to God? I can't do this. It was a mindset that enabled him to forgive his brothers and to release them from everything that he thought that they would ever owe him, which was a lot. He spent 13 years of his life incarcerated because of his brother's nasty deeds. And so Jesus suffered our pain to free us from the pleasure 
called sin, and that only causes pain in the end. And, but many of us, we just don't believe, we just don't believe that. Most people don't think that sin is that bad, and it could be helpful. And they still have that mindset, they still have that opinion, even though that opinion is in direct opposition to what the Lord says. If you don't believe me, when you get a, into a position in life and you got to make a decision, and here's the decision that you got to make, and if you decide to go this way, it is a direct violation of God's word. If you choose to go this way, it is in keeping with the will of God, which way are you going to choose? Right? For most of us, because our, our default is our flesh, we're going to choose this one, right? Because in the, now, so, so now we've got to do mental gymnastics. Because now, like, okay, well, I feel a little guilty about that because, you know, I know this is a direct violation of God's word, but my opinion is, or I was thinking, or this is the way I've always done it. And here's the last one. My old thought patterns come naturally. And he says, and take every thought captive, every thought that doesn't go with the knowledge of God, take it prisoner, take it off the battlefield, take it off your mind. Because if the truth were known, how many thoughts do you have in a day that you're not even consciously aware that you're having? Some of you are really moody people, right? You get all cranked up during the day, get all moody. Somebody will ask you, why are you moody? Well, I don't know. My kids, they're driving me crazy. Oh, my coworkers. So is there a way to change that mindset that would change your mood? You better believe there is, regardless of what people are doing around you. If you're constantly ebbing and flowing by the moods of others or the, the actions of others around you, you're going to be like that unstable person, right? You're double-minded. You're all over the map because, you know, one minute you're okay, next minute you're moody. I'm not saying that, listen, we don't have initial reactions that what people do to us or say about us or to us. Sure, we all do. But the question is, what is the grid of my mind as, as that action or those words filter through? What is the grid of my mind and, and what's my response going to be is going to be on the basis of am I going to respond in the flesh? Am I going to respond in the spirit? Am I responding out of lie-based thinking or am I responding out of truth-based thinking? Because the response is going to be different and the outcomes will be different. But we have to change the way we think, but it's so, so difficult for us to do that. And so what Paul is saying, listen, no more unfiltered thoughts, no more unapproved, unfiltered. Where did that come from? Thought. He says, listen, you are to take that thought, you're to bring it captive into Christ, and we'll talk about exactly how to do that, how you bring that into obedience to Christ so that my response now is out of obedience to Christ and not out of what my default thoughts are saying to me and my default responses. But it is it's difficult, but it's not impossible. Here's the last one, because my engagement must be personal. He says in verse 6, and we will be ready to punish every act of disobedience once your obedience is complete. In other words, Paul says, man, I'm coming. I'm going to take care of some business, but I can't do it until your obedience is complete. In other words, guys, you have to take responsibility for the way you think. Nobody else can take it for you, right? It's not, I'm not responsible for your thoughts. You're not responsible for mine. Your spouse is not responsible for the way you think. Your children are not responsible. You're not responsible for them. You're responsible with what you do with your thoughts. And unless you take responsibility for this, here's what's going to happen. You're going to listen to this, series, this, this whole series, 
you're going to say, well, that's okay. I got that, right? Okay, well, yeah, nice talk, Greg. Until you put it into practice, ain't nothing changing in your life. You'll be the same person next year and the year after that and the year after that, and you're going to battle and struggle with the same issues, hurts, habits, and hang-ups over and over and over for the rest of your life, and you're going to blame people, and you're going to blame circumstances, and you're going to play, try to justify, and in your mind and in your heart, you're going to try to make excuses and all this, and nothing's going to change. Listen, you have to take responsibility, which means when I give homework assignments, you got to sit down and do it. All right, this isn't going to take like hours, okay, of homework, but I just want you to, I want you to come equipped the next week with some stuff so that, so that when I'm talking about what you need to do, you have an actual uh, illustration from your own life as to how this pinpoints that and how you begin making that process of change. Okay, I'm going to tell you, if you can change your thoughts, you can change your life, but nothing changes until you change the way you think. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the power of the, the transforming power of the Holy Spirit, the transforming power of your word. God, and just faith and trust in both of those things can make such a monumental difference, Lord, in our lives and in our thought processes. I, I pray for those, God, who are in marital strife, that their partner, marriage partner, is not the issue. The issue is how am I thinking? And the only way that that relationship is going to be healed and made whole, brought from brokenness to wholeness, is by both partners changing their thought processes. I pray for those who are, God, just frustrated in life, filled with life's disappointments and valleys, and I don't like where I'm at, and I want to be somewhere different, and I want my life to be different. Lord, I pray that in these weeks ahead that you will help them, God, begin changing their thoughts. Father, you have, a, you have a destiny for them that is wonderful, it is glorious, it is magnificent. And Father, um, God, I know you, you desire that that plan and that purpose would fall from heaven to earth, that your will would be done here on earth as it is in heaven in their life. But God, we know that that will never happen until they begin changing the way they think. So Lord, I pray that you will divinely help them in that process. Lord, we've brought so many problems and difficulties into this house of worship today that if not a single one of them has caught you by surprise, not a single one, but you do have an answer and you do have a solution to the problems and the difficulties that we struggle with in our day in and day out in our lives. So, Lord, we thank you that you have given us a powerful, powerful tool to demolish the strongholds that have infiltrated our thought processes so that we might experience wholeness and healing in those areas of our lives. So, Father, we choose as an act of our will today to cooperate fully with your design on how to experience transformation. God, we commit ourselves to do the work, the hard work that it's going to take but God, we know that it is fruitful work. It, is the, it results in the fruit of the Spirit being evidenced in our lives and in our, our emotions and in our relationships and our activity and God, just how we approach everything in life. So Lord, I pray that the enemy will not have any victory here, but God, there will be the tearing down of strongholds 
they would be demolished one by one. And Lord, that we might claim the victory. And over these next several weeks, when we get to the end of this process, Father, we just thank you for the, the glorious um, well, just celebration that will take place when we begin to learn how to defeat our enemy on that battlefield called our mind that results in the transformation of our everyday lives. In the mighty name of Jesus, we thank you and we praise you. Amen and amen.